everyone. Before I get into today's show, I just want to mention that I have a three-part workshop series coming up August 14th, 21st, and 28th. And the content is going to be based off my book, Ambitious Heroes and Heartaches. If you've read or listened to that book and want to explore some of the ideas deeper, really, really wrestle with how these ideas might show up in your own life, this would be a great place to do that. You can pay whatever you want to attend, and if you can't make the live recordings, although there'll be some value in that because we'll do Q&A and stuff like that, but if you can't make the live recordings, that's okay too. I'm going to send out both audio and video, and as I said, you can pay whatever you want to attend and to get access to, to that content. In the first week, we're going to discuss identifying your own call to adventure. How does the call show up in our lives? The second workshop is called Finding Soul, Contemplations on Pain, Beauty, and Meaning. And then the third one is going to be called Legacy and Fate. And also, we should probably mention too that my latest book, if you've not read it, is available in all formats, audio, video, and Kindle. All of that will be linked up in this episode in addition to all of the sources that are mentioned. All right, without further ado, here is episode three of A Thousand Names for God. This episode is called In Search of the Sacred. Today we're going to talk about what I call the sacred search. That is the search for consciousness. Now, we obviously hear a lot about growth these days, but growth is a bit of a buzzword. And in truth, I believe that an increased consciousness is much more than growth. If you listen to the last episode, I talked about the analogy with the house and the helicopter and how as you get in the helicopter and you see the house from a different angle, you realize that there is much more that's true than what you were able to see with your perspective. It includes healing past wounds and a commitment to finding the truth of a situation, seeing through one's own self-deception and because our capacity for self-deception is so great, any true search for the real is going to cause an upheaval in your life. It also includes a revivication of your ability and capacity to feel, to be fully human. We have such an intellectual culture that we often forget that life is not only abstract ideas, but actually a feeling that one gets when they are fully immersed in their life. And this is some of what I hope to impart in this episode. I hope to show that if you really follow and track religions, you see a democratization of the sacred. It used to be a certain place where the divine dwelled, but it's been democratized to every single individual. The sacred is right here, but it's us that leave it. Many of us choose the delusion, we choose the simplified life because the truth or the real is something we have to be ready for. This is because when we touch the sacred, when we touch the all or the world soul, it's healing. And so we actually have to feel worthy of being healed. And so we have to feel worthy of waking up to our life. We'll also talk about vision as a metaphor for consciousness. All through sacred scriptures, you see the light and dark motifs being played out. And those tell you a lot about how we understand consciousness. In the New Testament, you have Christ saying, I am the light of the world. And in other places, you see him saying, I am the truth. And so you get the sense that truth and light are somehow inextricably linked. And of course, light gives you better vision. And perhaps you might say that what God is, is the place where light and truth 
stop being other than each other. Imagine a vibrational frequency so high where things like light, love, and truth, they fuse into each other as borders dissolve. And this, too, is why I say that with our intellectual traditions, we have a hard time uh, really ascertaining any sort of experiential knowing of God because our concepts actually dissolve as our perspective gets higher. Far predating Christianity, you also see this motif all through antiquity. Um, The pharaoh of Egypt was thought to be an incarnation of Ra, the sun god. I think probably a lot of people know that. But even more fascinating, you see in some tribal Native American cultures that God, or Great Spirit, wasn't contained in the sun, but was actually only in the sunrise. So the idea that the first light was a sign of divinity. And this gives us a fundamental understanding of how the nature of consciousness actually works. It continuously evolves itself. Consciousness is working to grow more complex. And as it does, it gains insight, which we often portray with a symbol of a light bulb. We've all seen the cartoon with the light bulb over the head. You know, our revelatory experiences give us a deeper understanding by first illuminating what was once hidden in the dark. And so I think that's why talking about consciousness as being expanded makes more sense, right? As your perspective grows, as it gets higher, what you can see becomes expanded. You can see far more from the top of the building than you can from the ground floor. This also gives us a bit of understanding of why moments of illumination are considered a bit of a grace an appreciation for the warmth and illumination of the light. A little gratitude goes a long way. I remember I was in northern Canada one time for a trip with the Special Forces experience, and it was freezing cold, and I showed up unprepared, if you can imagine. I didn't have like my sleeping bag. I didn't have anything. I had stopped at it. This is a true story. I didn't really understand the magnitude of the wilderness I was getting into, and I stopped at a gas station and bought like a quilt on my way out to sleep in, and it was snowing and raining, freezing rain, and I barely slept. I mean, I was just so cold, like chattering all night, and then the next day, uh, I get out of my cot, out of my tent, and I walk over, and I make some, you know, trash coffee. And I walk over to, like instant coffee, and I walk over to a clearing in a field, and I sit on a log, and I start drinking the coffee. And about 10 minutes later, the sun breaks through the clouds. And in that moment, I completely understood, like fully in my bones understood why native peoples or peoples of antiquity would have correlated the idea of divinity or of God with this warmth and illumination that was then like sort of shining on me. I I felt it as it kind of hit my skin. I felt this moment of like as if I were fully alive, as if something about life was being illuminated through the metaphorical exchange that I was having with the sunrise. It was a very interesting sort of spiritual moment that I didn't really know how to categorize, but I've always thought about that and been interested in that because it's easy for us from our technological standpoint from our advanced civilization with our science to look back and be like those people were so dumb like it's so stupid that they would think that the sun is god right it's just a burning ball of fire and it's like yeah that's true 
until the sun gives you exactly what you need to sustain life. And then actually it becomes a little bit more difficult to say that that sunrise isn't some form of divinity, isn't some grace. And you can imagine when power doesn't even exist and you're living in harsh conditions in the Midwest or something like that, how, how really incredible that that first moment of light can be and why these ideas are so bound up to each other or with each other. I think seen in this way, even our sufferings can be understood as a little bit of a grace if in fact they lead us to a deeper understanding of what it means to be us and how we're connected to all that is. Like, I don't think anybody would choose their sufferings, but if you can take your pain and extract wisdom from it, and then you understand more deeply about what it means to be you, what it means to be here, there's a grace in that. You know, it's like a, something that can help us going forward. I also want to point out that our reaches for consciousness are not without their difficulties. Werner Heisenberg said, not only is the universe stranger than we think, it's stranger than we can think. So you'll hear in that quote a bit of the sentiment that powered the last podcast, which is that the limits of our perception keep us from a full understanding of the reality that we're embedded within. Right? That's what he's saying when he says, it's stranger than we actually can think. Today, we're going to discuss that reality or theories that posit what the ultimate nature of that reality might be. And I'm going to unfold many more of these throughout, throughout future podcasts. But what I like about theories of consciousness and studies that try to map consciousness out is that they are something like the formation of a secular cosmology. You know, just like religions that attempt to re-ligament the entire world, theories of consciousness are grasps at understanding the very source of our existence. And the reason I like the secular quest, at least to balance out the sacred quest, is because they're a bit less beholden to dogma and thus more likely to search for truth. Now, I have to preface this by saying that dogma, you know, in our culture, and I, I'm certainly guilty of this, tend to really downplay the importance of dogma. But dogma does have a utility in the quest for knowledge because it creates constraints. I think because dogma has caused so much pain, you know, that's one of the reasons that we tend to want to dismiss it. But I think sometimes we dismiss time-tested methods at our own peril. And there's something important here, which is, can we look at these doctrines, can we look at these sacred scriptures, and take what is useful, but leave what isn't serving us any longer. It's really difficult to know where that line is, and that discernment takes a lot of time and a lot of wrestling. But again, I just wanted to say that because it's easy to just be like, okay, all dogma is garbage. But it's like this. If you imagine pure potential, it's actually chaos, right? It's simultaneously everything and nothing at the same time. Now, what manifests the potential are constraints. This is the underpinnings of the saying discipline equals freedom. Like maybe you've heard that before. Um, if you remain in the place of pure potential, never committing to a method, a life path, a constraint of some sort, you will remain nothing at all. It's only when potential is forced into form that it becomes something. So when dogma, just like any other method, such as the scientific method, is at its best, it creates the right constraints that make finding truth possible. 
This is also what's behind Aristotle and his virtues. By holding yourself to virtues, you constrain your behavior, and in doing so, you end up manifesting your own potential. Right? This is when you sacrifice something in the present moment for something that you want ultimately. That's a constraint that helps you add form to your potential so that you can become something in this life, something more manifest, more expanded, more incarnate than you are now. I spent a year in seminary studying theology, getting a master's, and one of the things that rubbed me the wrong way and ultimately why I decided to pursue my PhD in a different route was because I felt as though we were only, I felt like I was only able to ask questions that could support the dogma. It's like you can ask questions, but if your questions, if the answers to your questions seem like they're going to undercut the answers that we've already decided are true, then those questions aren't necessarily welcomed. And so I just personally had a problem with that. It's the idea that we, I would much rather have questions that we can't answer than, than answers that we're not allowed to question. And so that's, I felt that in my being. It felt like I wasn't searching for truth anymore. I was searching for the right combination of words that would support doctrine. And so that was my own personal why I sort of fell away with that. But what I want to talk about here is the search for truth. That is the sacred search because something happens when our mind comes into harmony with reality. It's not just healing. There's something ecstatic about it or something revitalizing about it. Truth and the water of life are bound up. But consciousness as a phenomena is also completely unknown to us. So everything is theory. And the reason being is that understanding the nature of what you are actually lies outside of the perceptual lens that you have to understand where you are. This, is, I think, is the impulse toward mysticism. This is why I, I personally find mysticism to be so compelling, because it takes us from the abstractions, the intellectual abstractions, and it attempts to know something at a level that is deeper than the intellect. Uh, a girl named Evelyn Underhill wrote a book on mysticism in 1911, and she has a great definition of it um, that will work for our purposes today. So I'm going to read that real quick. She's talking about mysticism here and says, One of the most abused words in the English language, it has been used in different and often mutually exclusive senses by religion, poetry, and philosophy has been claimed as an excuse for every kind of occultism, for dilute transcendentalism, vapid symbolism, religions or aesthetic sentimentality, and bad metaphysics. On the other hand, it has been freely employed as a term of contempt by those who have criticized these things. It is much to be hoped that it may be restored sooner or later to its old meaning as the science or art of the spiritual life. Meanwhile, those who use the term mysticism are bound in self-defense to explain what they mean by it. Broadly speaking, I understand it to be the expression of the innate tendency of the human spirit towards complete harmony with the transcendental order, whatever be the theological formula under which that order is understood. This tendency in great mystics gradually captures the whole field of consciousness. It dominates their life, and in the experience called mystic union, attains its end. Whether that end be called the God of Christianity, the world soul of pantheism, the absolute of philosophy, the desire to attain it, and the movement towards it. So long as this is a genuine life process and not an intellectual speculation, 
It's the proper subject of mysticism. I believe this movement to represent the true line of development of the highest form of human consciousness. So what she's positing there is this idea that we can move toward what is called mystical union, but what that actually is is a way of knowing things. The way we know things changes as our consciousness changes. In Matthew, Jesus quotes Isaiah and says, You will indeed listen, but never understand. You will indeed look, but never perceive. And I think this is because what's being said is at a level of consciousness that the proverbial you, your egoic consciousness, right, your everyday experience of yourself is just not privy to that level of knowing. I've actually had this sense before. Before I, I remember just sort of contemplating scripture and I would be reading something, you know, probably some verse I've heard a thousand times in church growing up or something. But it dawns on me that the level at which it is said is so far above my ability to grasp that I can't truly touch its deepest meaning. Like I, I'm just not, I'm not there. I'm not privy to that kind of knowledge. I actually have to do the work to actually become that's what contemplation is. It's, it's a surrender into the present moment and a relinquishing of the intellect. This is actually the reason behind John of the, St. John of the Cross is dark night of the soul. We use dark night of the soul all the time. And in my opinion, we tend to misappropriate the language. Like it's not just a depression. It's not just a bad time, right? What's happening is you are actually being prepared for a bigger union, with being itself during the dark night of the soul. And so you're sen- you go through this period of sensory deprivation where actually the things that normally gratify the senses stop working. And it's actually a really unsettling time because all of the ways that you've known before your intellect, the way you've sensed your way in the world starts to be removed from you. So you don't even, you can't even feel divinity in the way that you used to. Like in my perspective, as I felt myself moving into the dark night, I actually withdrew. I actually felt scared. I felt a little bit untethered and and felt like it was time to like back off a little bit. So it's a it's a struggle to change the way in which you know things, the way in which you sense your way through this world. One of the ways that Richard Rohr talks about it, and I'll talk a little bit more about him later, he was a Catholic priest of the Franciscan order, but he talks about this idea that as you move toward God, God moves away. And not because you don't deserve to feel divinity, but rather because it draws you in closer. It it makes you move through these sensory deprivation points where all of the ways in which you've navigated the world prior to this point stop working. And this opens up a new conversation, which is is any of this actually worth it? Because as I felt myself moving into this dark night of the soul and I felt my egoic consciousness, my understanding of myself being unwrapped, I felt as though that all of the pain of trying to become more conscious wasn't really worth it. Being aware of more, right, seeing more, actually asks us to confront what has previously been unconscious, and that can be intensely painful. I would submit that the entire last year, and we'll, I want to get a little more into this later, but the entire 2020, a lot of the pain was seeing the way in which 
we had patterned ourselves and built our society and our culture and the pain that that was actually causing for people. We're becoming aware of more, but that doesn't, that's not always a good thing at first, right? It's actually a really painful thing. Richard Rohr, he has a book called The Wisdom Pattern, and he talks about the wisdom pattern, the wisdom pattern as order, disorder, and then reorder. So it's the idea that we go through some sort of upheaval. This is the hero, right? The hero's journey going from the known world to the unknown and then back into alignment with reality at the end, comes back into the known world with new gifts and new, new bounty, new elixir. And so this wisdom pattern is played out in all the world's great religions. And also you go through it in personal transformation and in cultural transformation. Like what I would submit is that the wisdom pattern is true at every level of analysis, order, disorder, reorder. And when we're in the disorder part, it doesn't feel worth it all of the time. I think that's just what I want to impart here. It's easy to be like, I don't think any of this struggle is actually bringing me where I want to go. But no matter what your belief, theory, or worldview as to where consciousness comes from, reaching for more of it is inevitably going to be painful. Here's something that's interesting with my courses that I noticed. This has been one of the most difficult things for me to navigate as a coach because growth work doesn't necessarily make you feel better. Right? You could actually be moving toward a higher heightened awareness of what it means to be you, a more expanded consciousness, a more uh, robust embodiment of your life on earth, and that could feel like hell. Right? And so sometimes I think people want to take courses like this, and they would consider the course a success if they leave feeling better. Like if I just feel better about myself, that actually equals better. But I would say that that's not true, actually. I would say that it is at some places, but oftentimes we just inflate our ego. We don't actually transform. We don't go through any transformation. We just inflate our sense of self. We tell ourselves things that make us feel better. We rearrange our ego contents. We identify with something bigger, but we're not actually transform transforming. I think transformation comes from the inside out. The light that is within you actually transfigures you. That's, I think, the symbolism behind the transfiguring of Christ. It's like real-time transformation where the light that is in you becomes more palpable and the outside world notices that. And when you're around people that have gone through these kind of transformations, you, you feel it in their, I hate to use the word aura, but in their energetic frequency, in their exchange with you. You can feel that the light is working through this person and you can feel that it kind of comes from the core of who they are and then radiates outward. And being around people like that, you're actually the beneficiary of them having gone through their own hero's journey and their own transformation. And I think we, we have the opportunity to go through our own sacred darkness to find our own light so that we can be that for other people. Ken Wilber, who I mentioned before, founded the field of integral psychology and really really what he did is mapped out levels of consciousness and took the world's religions and the perennial philosophies and mapped those on top of his levels of consciousness. But one of the things that he said is that there are two paths of transformation in this life, great love and great suffering. Now, what I propose is that as you start to become aware of more, you actually get let in. It feels like you're getting let in on some inside joke. And the, the joke is that those two are actually the same thing. 
great love and great suffering. It's like that, that one quote, uh, as love crowns you, so too shall it crucify you. Littered throughout reality, you find what I like to call this cosmic giggle, the irony that's built into the very fabric of the world's soul. And it's interesting because when people talk of waking up, they often talk as if they've just been let in on some great joke. This is often why you see the Buddha in art, right? And, and I would say that the Buddha is really the, the symbolism of waking up. You often see that the Buddha's laughing or smiling portrayed in art. And I think part of what is being hinted at there is this cosmic giggle. There's like a lightheartedness about really waking up to what and who you are. But at lower forms of consciousness, right, when you're on your way up, so to speak, the irony that seems innocent from another view presents as paradox. So Carl Jung said that the inability to handle and resolve paradox was one of the great barriers to people's individuation journeys. So essentially what happens is we start to grow and then often meet some irreconcilable difference within ourselves. And rather than hold the tension, we retreat to simpler ways of being. And so what happens when we meet a paradox or some sort of tension in ourselves that we can't resolve, we, we end up trying to leave it all together, right? That's retreating to simpler ways of being. And what I would submit to you is that if you do that, which, which I've done, which we all do, when we try to retreat into how we used to be, it's like, I just want to go back to the good old days. There's a resentment that starts to grow because you know that it's not truth anymore, right? You can't live out these old patterns once you're aware that there are better and newer ways of being in the world. So I think here's where you find a lot of psychological overlay with the passion narratives. The cross symbolizes the holding of tension, the horizontal line being the humanity and the vertical line being divinity. And he's called to hold the tension, the, the meeting place of those two things. And we are too in our search for rebirth. What the transcendent function is, is essentially says, if you hold the tension of opposites long enough, a symbol will come forward that will help you resolve that tension and lead you into a higher way of being. But the thing that makes it so tough is that the, the timeline is unspecified and unknowable. And so holding the tension feels as though it's actually going to, going to tear you up inside. And so the tension presents as something like this. I'll use an example from my own life because it's all I have. Um, so... So imagine I'm battling with an old habit, but I'm at the place or point in my life where I'm like really ready to try to put it down. Now, part of me wants to retreat into these old habits, like ways that I self-soothe, ways that I comfort myself. Now, part of me wants to retreat, but there's also part of me that doesn't want that at all, that actually wants to embody a bigger or better way of being in the world based on my own definition of what I've seen. And so the tension is the part of you that wants to go back, have the drink, smoke the joint, look at, you know, flip porn hub open, whatever it is for you, right? And I'm not using any of these pejoratively because I think moderation is everything. But if they start to own your life, if they start to take over your life, right, you'll feel when you try to stop doing them that part of you wants to go back there, but then part of you is waking up that thing that's waking up in you, that's hero energy. Often that gets swallowed by the part of you that wants to go backward. 
And so you end up with this struggle. It's an internal division and it feels like it's going to tear you apart. But if you can identify those two parts in yourself and you can just hold the tension, not having to disavow your darkness altogether and also not not allowing your darkness to have the final say in who you are, then eventually, this is the tough part, you'll get led into a higher way of being. I used a metaphor for this journey in Ambitious Heroes and Heartache, so I'm going to read that super quickly. I think it gives a good, um, a good outline of this journey. You might think about this journey as if you've been living your entire life in a dark room with no windows. You aren't unhappy because it's all you've ever known. But then one day, you see a little light peeking through the walls. Now, this is the moment that you realize that this life that you've been living isn't It's not going to do going forward. Like there's something else for you. There's something more. That's that light peeking through the window. Now, as you approach that light, you realize that the walls are actually blinds. And so you lift the blinds only to realize that there's an entire other world outside that you knew nothing about. This is revelation. And what you see is that there are mountains and rivers and animals and sunlight. Now, from that point forward, you'll never be content to go back to living in the dark room, no matter how happy you were. You won't stop until you get out there and experience this new world for yourself. There is no going back to how it used to be in the dark room. The trajectory of your life will forever be changed whether you like it or not. Now, asking yourself the right questions is akin to pulling up the blinds. Each new question you ask that hints at the ultimate truth of our reality will unfold ten more. Thus, understanding the human experience isn't about getting the right answers, but about asking the right questions. So what I'm hinting at there is that the questions we ask ourselves, the questions I pose on this podcast, the books we read, we're trying to let light in. That's what we're doing. We're trying to let the light in that's going to illuminate what's been hidden in the darkness. Now, in our reaches for consciousness, we often find ourselves stuck in these in-between places, right? In the hero's journey, as I said, it's where we've crossed the threshold into the unknown world. Now, our aim in this place is to try and embody what we know. As Mark Grove says, to live at our highest level of knowledge. And yet, to treat ourselves with compassion when we don't. In this way, we become the arbiter of our own growth and gatekeeper to it. Here's what I mean. Most of you are familiar with the internal tyrant, right? So you have an ideal in your mind of of the best version of you, you could say. If, If you were to manifest your potential in all areas, you were to embody your highest level of knowledge in your life, then that that's the version of you that you have in your mind. Now, when you fall short of that, oftentimes we get something like the internal tyrant that comes up, right? And what is really important to understand is that the internal tyrant ensures that growth remains stunted. Because what it does is when you identify with the tyrant, the version of you that fell short gets kept small. It doesn't get invited back into integrity, back into the whole. But what invites you back into the whole is grace. Grace is what makes up the space between who you are and who you could be. Grace invites who you are over to who you could be. The tyrant, the internal tyrant, the way we beat ourselves up, actually keeps us small in that way. It ensures that those pieces of us that fell short don't get invited back into integrity, back into the whole. 
and if you watch political tyrants or you know tyrants of any kind in leadership positions work, they rely on a fractured society. And so often what happens is the first stage of seeing into the real, right, all caps, real, into reality, often brings with it so much pain because we see the way we've been caught in Maya, in the delusion of who we think we are and what we think all of this is. And as I said before, culturally, I think that's what we're going through right now. I mean, just think about how much turmoil we've been in lately. Remember, order, disorder, reorder. We're in disorder in its grace that invites us back into the reorder, right? These are um, theological themes, but they're also just true in real life because, you know, we see what's happening out in the world today. Just take the two big parties in the United States. They're essentially fighting between uh, chaos and order, and you actually need both in harmony for consciousness to emerge. Remember that I said it is, it's sort of a biological imperative. It seems to be built into us because what conscious wants to do is grow more complex. And so it doesn't settle for stagnation. And so what you see is between the two parties trying to find some sort of symbiosis between progress, but then the other party having again in their slogan, right? Actually, no, we need more police, more order. We have to go backwards. And so this struggle is actually taking place in real time, in culture. And so you have a war between the order and the disorder. And what we need is grace to invite both sides into reorder. It's not this, we think we have to throw the whole system out or not, but that's not how reality works. What you want to do is integrate what works and let go of what's not serving the emergence of the highest good, but that takes nuance. And in order to see that nuance in culture and in other people, we have to learn to see it in ourselves. And in order to see it in ourselves, we actually have to let that division take place internally. Remember, you have a part of you that wants to go backward toward old patterns of being in the world and part of you that really wants to go forward. Holding the tension between those two is what's going to give you the reorder. It's the same thing that we need to do in our culture, right? We have to come to the middle so that we can see nuance. Now, I'll talk a little bit later about this, but I think time will tell whether we do that or not. Now, I also would submit here in the cultural example that there's a mythic idea, which is that in terms of turmoil, awakening becomes increased. Like it actually needs to be too. It is the times of turmoil which create the imperative and the conditions to begin waking up. In some sense, the nature of our world is such that waking up is becoming an imperative. Like we actually have to. With technology on the verge of infinite replication, I think we're realizing that we're gonna push the delete button on the species. Brett Weinstein talked about this. He said, we've got the power of gods without the wisdom. I think that's exactly right, because it seems to me that right now we're in the middle ground of what's called the infinite monkey theorem. I don't know if you guys have heard of this. It's so fascinating, but it essentially says there's different versions of it, but 10 million monkeys typing away for 10 million years would eventually produce the Encyclopedia Britannica before lapsing back into madness. And so the question is, which direction are we going to choose? And perhaps a more accurate question, which direction are you going to choose? You know, it's as if you're in this moment right now where light 
has, has illuminated enough so that we can keep going down that path. We can keep reaching for it. But it's not enough to disavow the darkness, which is what I think we've tried to do. When you look at the way that Christian culture, for example, has taken over the world, or the way that it took over the world would be a better way of saying it, you see things like the Salem witch trials, right? You see things like the, the burning of witches, the burning of pagans. And before Christianity took over the, as the main uh, deity of Rome, Christ as the main deity of Rome, you had the opposite was true, right? Christians were being killed in the arena by the pagans. And what's happening here on both sides is that people are trying to vanquish what they don't like or what doesn't agree with them. So it's not enough to just choose light, right? You have to reach for the light, but by doing that, you actually have to support your need by meeting yourself with compassion as you inevitably fall short of your own ideals. You can't just vanquish the dark. You have to invite it into the light. The light extinguishes the dark once the two meet each other. If you don't, I don't think you'll be able to give that compassion and grace to other people. Like we have to, everything we're seeing in the world is actually occurring right in our heart. And if we continue down the path of the tyrant, it's likely that the great awakening is going to be consumed and we're going to lapse back into badness as seven billion monkeys were unable to reach for the reality that sat just above them. The reality they instinctively feel every time they see the sunrise. I'm going to end with one final paragraph from Evelyn Underhill's book, Mysticism. Give yourself, then, to this divine and infinite life, this mysterious cosmic activity in which you are immersed, of which you are born. Trust it. Let it surge in on you. Cast off as the mystics are always begging you to do the fetters of the senses, the remora of desire, and making your interests identical with those of the all rise to freedom, to that spontaneous creative life which, inherent in every individual self, is our share of the life of the universe. You are yourself vital, a free center of energy, did you but know it. You can move to higher levels, to greater reality, truer self-fulfillment, if you will. Though you be, as Plato said, like an oyster in your shell, you can open that shell to the living waters without, draw from the immortal vitality. Thus only, by contact with the real, shall you know reality. This is our call to adventure, as a culture, as individual, as a species. The greatest fear, the greatest obstacle to our reach for consciousness is the simplification of reality. It's the inability to hold the paradox and the complexity that's inherent in ourselves. We have to hold that if in fact we want to get in that helicopter so that we can see more of what is going on, more of what's true. And you know what? We have to have a little bit of grace, not just for ourselves, but for each other when we reach and fall short. And then, and this is the most important then, we actually have to be willing to accept that grace. We have to feel worthy of the light we're reaching for. We actually have to feel worthy of the life that we're going to find after we wake up, once we transcend our current mode of being in the world. And feeling worthy isn't as straightforward as it sounds because 
as I've mentioned a couple times on here, consciousness has this imperative to grow more complex, to understand itself better. You know, this is why as humans, we're just endlessly fascinated with ourselves and the kind of behavior that we exhibit and trying to figure out what it is that we're up to. Like consciousness, us, is trying to study itself so that it can expand and become aware of more of what's going on. I mentioned uh, power versus force, David Hawking's in the last episode. So he, he mapped out levels of consciousness. And in a thousand point scale, he said that consciousness on average increases by five points per generation. And very interestingly enough, he has a whole sort of equation set up where essentially the average level of consciousness has to reach a certain point so that we don't lapse back into madness or hit the delete button on our species. But the reason I'm saying that is because what that means is that you were born with the desire to have a conscious experience of this life that is beyond the family system, culture, and society that you were born into. And we know this, right? We look back at other times in culture and we're like, why, how could they have treated people like that? Why were they like that? And it's like, well, because consciousness wasn't at the level it is now. We actually can see more now. We actually understand the importance of equality. And what happens is as you're born with this desire to become more conscious and to become more fully alive, more fully incarnated, your spirit desires to become more fully incarnated, there's a scar that takes place because the family system that you're going to be, that you were born into, and this is just a general rule on average, isn't able to hold the desire that you have in your heart. And so there's a wound that takes place between parent and child as the child desires a certain way of being in the world, a certain level of life, you might say, that they're unable to give them them to you. Because the way that consciousness works is you see what you see and you don't see what you're unconscious of. And so even if they wanted to, they're not able to give you what it is that you are fully, fully searching for. That's why you have to go on your hero's journey, why you have to actually face your darkness, why you have to actually sacrifice the things that keep you comfortable, why you have to actually let go of the known world, because that's where you're going to learn what you need to learn to transform into who you're here to be. And in that process, you are given the insight which delivers to you the depth of awareness and perspective and consciousness in life that you're actually looking for. And so you're engaging in a reciprocal process with life and constantly learning what you need to learn. And in doing so, you're gifted an increased awareness, a heightened consciousness. And then as you do, you're actually not just increasing what you see. As I said at the beginning, you're reviving your capacity to feel. So you don't just become aware of more. You actually feel more fully alive. You feel more fully who you actually are. And there's a time where you have to actually mourn who you're not. You have to mourn that sacred scar that takes place as your family system and your culture are unable to deliver to you the life that you're really hoping for in the depth of your heart. But I would also say that you have that desire in the depth of your heart because it's in your destiny to go on the journey so that you can fulfill it. 
your desires aren't an accident. You're not here accidentally, but the way that consciousness it increases across our species is by us as individuals going on our journey. That's why in Ambitious Heroes in Heartache, I talk about culture and the individual as having a reciprocal relationship to each other, right? Because the culture keeps the individual safe, but the but the individual knows there's more going on. There's better ways of being here. There's more to do in the world. And so it's going on that hero's journey and then they're able to raise the consciousness of the collective, right? We show people new ways of being. We show people, hey, you used to fight over this, but now actually from what we understand, it doesn't make much sense to do so anymore. So we have to have the courage to let go of what we've known and embody a new way of being. And it is the individual who goes on their sacred search who is going to be able to deliver that to society. That's why Maharashi said the greatest gift that you could give humanity, that you could give the world, is your own self-realization.